Welcome to the Hypermobility Happy Hour podcast, the first podcast exclusively dedicated to discussing hypermobility conditions, including hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. On this podcast, we like to explore what, what we can do to treat our conditions to live more fulfilling lives. Today, we're very excited to have Dr. Pradeep Chopra as our guest. Dr. Chopra completed an anesthesiology residency at Harvard Medical School and went on to complete a fellowship in pain management, also from Harvard. Dr. Chopra is double board certified in pain management and anesthesiology by the American Board of Anesthesiology. Currently, Dr. Chopra holds the appointment of assistant professor clinical at the Department of Medicine at Brown Medical School, as well as an adjunct professorship of anesthesiology at Boston University School of Medicine. Dr. Chopra has won numerous awards commemorating his achievements and his approach to treating his patients. The list is far too long to go through here, but we'll include a list to his website in the episode notes, which has a complete list. Dr. Chopra is also the article of several publications on chronic pain, including book chapters and academic articles. He has a special interest in managing complex pain conditions, including complex regional pain syndrome, or CRPS, and the Ehlers-Danlos syndromes. Dr. Chopra also frequently gives presentations to raise awareness about EDS and specifically about pain issues in the community. Dr. Chopra, hello, and thank you for joining us today. Hello, Carrie. I'm glad to be here, and thank you for inviting me. Uh, thank you for the introduction. And it is indeed uh, my pleasure to be able to uh, enlighten your, your listeners on the intricacies of ADS today. Absolutely. It's our, our pleasure to have you. We're so excited to hear your perspective. Um, let's start out by talking a little bit about your background. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about how you got interested in medicine and then specifically how you became interested in treating pain conditions and working with patients with hypermobility conditions? Um, yes, that's one of the things that I've always wondered why, but, um, I, I don't know. Um, when I was in med school, um, right from the beginning, I wanted to do pain medicine. And at that time, uh, there was very little on pain medicine. Literally there were no fellowships or any subject called pain medicine. Um, and over the years, I wondered why I got interested in. I, I was interested from the from day one, and you know, I, I used to suffer from migraine headaches. And uh, my mom used to take me to the physicians, and they would they would blow it off. Now now I realize that they would blow me off uh, with they would give me vitamin pills and say like, here's your med- pain medicine, and so I would have these migraines, and they never. No one ever even gave me something like even a Tylenol, oh, and awful. I didn't realize that's this. Awful. I didn't. <laughs> I didn't realize this for a very long time, and and my poor mother, she didn't even know that, and she just said, "You know what? This is a pill the doctor gave you for your headaches. Take it." And obviously, they didn't do much. Uh, <clears throat> and then it was only when I got into med school that I realized that um, I had migraine headaches. And then I started treating them on my own. And then I don't know if that was a trigger or not. I have no idea on the on a very subconscious level. But um, one of the things that bothers me most is to see suffering. And that's the reason why I became a physician was to prevent suffering. Uh, obviously, all doctors do that. Uh, but I just now 
to answer your second part of that question is why hypermobility conditions um, so i've always had an interest in uh, people who have had complex conditions because no one wants to take care of them so when i was doing my fellowship uh, we were treating you know the basic standard back pain you know knee pain and all that stuff but then we had this group of patients that were very complex and um, i'm talking about complex regional pain syndrome crps which for those who don't know it is one of the most brutal pain conditions known to mankind and these patients would come in and we really didn't have a whole lot to offer them um, and so i really so when i got into uh, working independently on my own i started taking a lot of interest in these patients uh, treating crps and complex regional pain syndrome conditions started getting into more complex conditions so the local pediatricians um they um kind of started calling me and they said hey listen can you can you see some of our kids and you know i wasn't sure so sure um i did do part of my training at boston children's um i, I it's not my fault i was trained there uh but i sort of said okay i'll take it I'll, you know it's a challenge i'll take it up and that's when i noticed that a lot of these kids had hypermobility that was missed so then i looked into the literature for hypermobility conditions and there was really nothing to um nothing about treating these patients they just said you know they have hypermobility and they have lax skin and uh and then there were some gross pictures and that's the end of it now so i'm long story i do have a background in surgery i have a background in orthopedics and then of course i have a background in critical care medicine and on top of that i have a background in pain medicine so i started you know pulling out all those neurons from my brain and started seeing like what can we can i do for these people so it's been about 30 years and um i'm hoping we've made some progress um uh, there have been some gains and some not so great gains every time i think i've nailed eds um all of a sudden something co- comes up like for example i thought i had figured out eds and then patients start coming in with pots then when i figured out pots patient starts patient start coming out with mast cell activation syndrome like it, it's so it's a never ending battle but that's what a physician is supposed to do is to fight these battles for their patients absolutely and i really admire your um tenacity and your courage to work with the patients who have been kind of left behind by the system um because so many doctors just don't like to go into complexity and not to blame them they have complex jobs you know even with sort of basic issues but um it's really disappointing to be you know dismissed and so it's it's just incredible that you were able to um you know draw on your incredible background which is really um in a lot of ways ideal to to be addressing pain in hypermobility and and kudos to you for noticing this connection with hypermobility and digging into the literature um because you're right it's been um incredibly sparse for quite a long time and now we have some stuff coming out and i agree there's been some progress in some areas and then there's some research that comes out that um definitely makes my eyebrows raise i guess to say the least um could you just just because um uh, crps comes up quite a bit could you tell us just a little bit about 
CRPS and what it is. I know it can vary quite a bit, but um, in a nutshell, I guess, um, what is it? So <clears throat> CRPS stands for Complex Regional Pain Syndrome. Uh, that name is a bit of a misnomer, but that's it's not very regional. It's actually can become body-wide. Uh, we don't really know the reason why some people develop CRPS. You can have a sm small injury like a sprain, or you can um, you know have a fracture or something, and and all of a sudden you wind up with this unrelenting pain, um, and it doesn't go away. It never goes down to zero or ten, and it's uh, they have pain to touch, which means you can't even touch them. They, they half of them come into they'll come in the middle of winter when shorts. And um, and it comes along with a whole slew of other symptoms also. So uh, they they also develop uh, dysautonomia. They also develop mast cell activation syndrome. It also spreads. So if someone starts out with CRPS in their right arm, may actually wind up having it in the rest of their body. Um, I first came across this condition actually many, many, many years ago, not realizing it was CRPS. Um, was um, this was when I was, you know, I, I I lived part of my life in Calcutta, in India, and um, I worked with uh, Mother Teresa at one at her leprosy home, and um, there were these these set of patients that they were you could not you could not you know but over there um, you could not bathe you had to bathe the patients they were they just couldn't do anything for themselves so you had to. That I volunteered there for some time before I started med school. Um, I had some time and I used to volunteer. And I saw these patients where I was told you can't touch that right leg because it's extremely painful. And I never understood that. I said, you know, obviously I, I was a not even a med, school, med student. And, um, you know, years later, I realized that we were, they were, referring to that as CRPS, and that's what they were talking about. And they, no one knew what it was then. And it stayed on in the back of my head. I'm like, who are these people? And what happened to their legs? And why couldn't we touch them? And you could touch them everywhere else, uh, but you couldn't touch that one leg or one arm. Um, and then I realized it was CRPS. And again, there was not nothing much on CRPS out there. Even now, to this day, there's not a whole lot of research or literature on CRPS that progress no progress has been made on it but uh, the problem is the link between hypermobility and CRPS so we know that CRPS is a nerve pain condition and there are patients with EDS that will develop CRPS uh, just because their nerves are being overstretched uh, because of joint hypermobility or laxity, or their nerves are being compressed because of uh, whatever reason, because of EDS. So they do develop CR uh, uh, People with joint hypermobility can develop CRPS. That, that's very interesting and, and good to know about that potential connection. Um, I guess I'm curious, and maybe, um, you know, I'm not sure if, how much time you spent you know, in, in Calcutta and sort of thinking about hypermobility, but did you have a sense of whether hypermobility is prevalent in, in that region too, or 
um, I, I guess, did you have any kind of observations about like whether Ehlers-Danlos is um, a significant issue there? It is. Uh, well, I mean, when I was there, we're talking about 30 years ago. And when, when I was there, um, there were patients that came in with CRPS. There were patients with joint hypermobility, but no one recognized it. No one really cared about it. No one knew about the POTS part about it, let alone the mast cell part about it. So they were like, yeah, you've got joint pain, you know, you've got joint hypermobility and there's not much we have to offer. But psych was not a problem. It wasn't said that you are making up. That was one of the things back in India was that we never uh, we never attributed any of this to psych issues. Uh, we always said, okay, yeah, you have a or you have an, a, a real problem. You have an organic issue um, and this is the best we can do for you. But psychiatry was not a big thing back then. Um, it wasn't like we said, oh, this is child abuse or this is all in your head and you're making it up. That was one of the cultural shocks about com- when I came to the United States. Um, and I'm like, really? You can accuse a child of, uh, of making it up? Why would they do that? And so we don't accuse adults of making it up as much as we do for children, whereas adults have a bigger motive to do that. But it's a, it's a weird world. Absolutely. It's, it's, I mean, in a way it's encouraging to hear that there are parts of the world where that psychiatry focus is not front and center, but unfortunately it's a huge issue in the community that a lot of patients, children, adults, um, people of really all ages, backgrounds, experience levels, um, you know, so many patients with EDS and hypermobility conditions go through um, that experience um, of, you know, being told it's all in your head. It's it's just anxiety, you know, and that's the end of the line. And um, it's it's very bizarre. I, I wonder if it's a function of the medical industry becoming so compressed for time and, you know, people only thinking in kind of 15 minute units of seeing patients or or what, but it, it's also even surprising to see how much research, and I guess I kind of put research in quotes, uh, there's been studies and articles and content, you know, written about the sort of psychological um, component. Um, and obviously, people with EDS and hypermobility conditions can and do have anxiety and depression for many reasons. But it just seems like there's an outsized amount of focus on that, um, especially in, I guess, you know, the, the U.S., but it sounds like the Western medical system um, as a whole is experiencing this issue. Kerry, do you want to know why people, why physicians uh, are eager to pinpoint this, ba- blame patients on this as anxiety or conversion disorder Absolutely, and all that stuff? yes. They're lazy bozos. <laughs> they are lazy physicians. <laughs> They look, I don't expect every physician to know mm-hmm. EDS, but I do expect them to know how to diagnose it and then guide them in the mm-hmm. proper way. I'm not a cardiologist, but I am supposed to know how to detect a heart attack and lead the patient, guide the patient towards right yes. care. How long does it take to do a bite and, sc- bite and scoring? Well, it takes nine seconds, mm-hmm. I can tell you that. But 
nine seconds, you can find it. Okay, listen, it looks like your Byton score is nine out of nine. You should go and see that guy who who's, who does knows more about EDS. Or I think you have EDS. You can read more about it and learn more Absolutely. about it. These are lazy physicians. They don't want to go in and look. They, they're just like, well, you have hypermobility. I'm sorry. I don't know what to do about it. That's that's why I call them lazy yeah, bozos. I, yeah, that's... Uh, Am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Yes, you can. <laughs> I'm allowed to? Really? Yes. The yes. FA is going to clamp down on you. <laughs> well, we can put a label. There's a little E you can put to say that there's swearing in it. So there's a there's a whole uh, uh, mechanism for that. But, like a bleep. Um, but we can always... Well, there'll be if I talk about psych stuff, then there's going to be a lot of bleeps. <laughs> yeah, it's certainly a big issue, um, and I'm and I'm glad to hear you kind of speak out so strongly on it because I I agree. I mean, I that was my sense from when I was practicing as an attorney. I mean, certainly you're not responsible to know every single part of the law. That's literally impossible. But you are generally responsible to know when you're getting into issues that are outside of your expertise. And then to, you know, refer to a different, you know, call a different attorney or, you know, expand your knowledge base if you can. So I agree. I think um, we really need to have higher standards for, um, you know, physicians to at least know, I mean, at least knowing that it exists would be a big improvement from a lot of the, um, you know, doctors I've seen. And I've heard of you know, doctors saying that they think this is a, a social media disease or that like this is a, a, a trendy thing that's just popped up. And I just shake my head because Ehlers and Danlos did their research in 1901 and 1908. And, you know, um, I say this all the time, but Hippocrates first described hypermobility in 400 BC. So it's like this stuff has been around forever. And yet somehow there's this strange level of denial. And I think a lot of it relies on, and I'd be interested to hear your perspective on this. I think a lot of um, doctors, because they're going so fast, they're really relying on just what they can see with their eyes. And you can't, you know, unless you really know what you're looking for in a person with them getting flustered, you can't really see someone having a POTS episode. You, you, you know, you may be able to see like in CRPS, you know, maybe the limb has some swelling or redness, but it might be completely invisible. And so um, I think a lot of times, a lot of doctors kind of look at us patients with EDS and think you, you look okay, you know, and then that, that's just, you know, they're, they're seeing people who they think are, you know, more sick or more in more pain based on how they physically appear. And um, there's just not a whole lot of humility, I guess, in the whole assessment, which is unfortunate. Kerry, listen, I know you can't see, I know these people can't see POTS. They can't see mast cell activation syndrome. But you, so is that is also the case with 90% of the medical conditions. You can't see a heart attack. You can't see cancer uh, when a patient walks in. The whole, I don't call it a science, the whole field of psychiatry is based on zero evidence. There's no evidence. I can go to a, I can go to a psychiatrist's office and say, "Look, I hear voices in my head. I hear four voices in my head, and I'll walk out with five prescriptions mm-hmm. easily." There's no way you can disprove mm-hmm. me. Yes, I do agree that a person with a with a chronic condition can have anxiety, can have depression. 
uh, I mean, it's it's normal if you're if you don't have anxiety or depression because you have subluxing hip joint and you can't walk yeah. three feet, and yeah. you don't get depressed about it. Yeah. That's abnormal. <laughs> I understand that. That's a situational anxiety and depression. But um, walking into a doctor's office and saying, "Listen, I get lightheaded every time I stand up," and um, all that the doctor has to do is check their heart rate, do do orthostatics in their office, which literally takes mm-hmm. ten minutes, and they'll have an answer. Absolutely, that's such a good point, and I'm glad you clarified that With because that? I right. recently heard um, I was speaking to a pot specialist, and he was saying that he still hears from doctors who don't believe in pots. And I, I was so taken aback by that because I'm like, what don't they believe in exactly? Because, you know, even though you may not be able to see the heart rate increase or you may not be able to see the vision loss or the presyncope, you can see the, I mean, the results of a tilt table test, you know, those can't be created. You can't, um, you know, fake a tilt table test you know, and you can't fake excess tryptase in your blood when it comes to mast cell activation. So absolutely. I think it's, I think it's a very absurd situation to say the least. Well, with this day, with this day of uh, smartwatches like the Apple watch, you can look mm-hmm. at their, they can look at their heart rate trends on mm-hmm. the phone, on the health app. And it is so mm-hmm. obvious the heart rate, they have their heart rate all over the place from it'll be 40 beats per minute to 150 okay. beats per minute. It goes all over the place. I mean, if my medical students, when I show them this and they can't diagnose this, they mm-hmm. flunk. That's great. <laughs> They're not going to graduate. They're not going to pass unless they catch on to these things. You really have to examine these patients. If a patient comes in and says, look, I have this brain fog, I have fatigue, and I just can't, I have this feeling of anxiety all the time. Don't write it off as an anxiety disorder. Look at their heart rate, look at their blood pressure, and do do orthostatics, and you'll have an answer right there. I can... But no, they'll do a whole cardiac workup, which has nothing to do with this. They'll get an, e- they'll get an EKG, they'll get, um, what's that called, Holter monitoring, which doesn't give them any answers. But they won't do that ten-minute um, orthostatics mm-hmm. in their office. Yeah. So it's incredible. Yeah, <laughs> it's really a bad situation. And and kudos to you for treating a new generation of students who are hopefully going to go out there and educate their peers. And um, you know, hopefully, as awareness you know gets better and patients are learning about this and how to advocate for themselves. Um, every little bit helps. And so I, I really commend um, your work on that front. It's it's incredibly useful and necessary. Carrie, on the on the on the subject of subject of advocacy before we move on to anything else, um, one of the things I want everyone to understand is that as a patient, you are your best advocate. And you know, read about your condition. There is plenty of good stuff out there. Um, there was a book that just got published a couple of years ago, uh, Disjointed, and um, it has very credible information in there. It's in straight English, um, nothing fancy about it. Um, get your credible, get, get this information from there. 
and understand and see if it makes sense and then follow up with it. Don't leave it to the medical world to come and help you and diagnose you with it. Uh, for example, if you read about, if you have headaches and you read about, let's say, headaches in EDS and you find, figure out that you might have Chiari malformation, then talk to someone who really understands Chiari malformation in EDS. And that ha- makes a difference. So what I'm saying is, read about it. Okay, I have all these terrible headaches. What's the reason? Read about it and then figure out what could be the reason for your headache and then follow up on that because I don't think you, they're, your people with EDS are going to get much help from non-EDS physicians on this subject. I agree completely. I think it's a much more efficient way to spend the time. Um, and I guess just a, a point, and, and the, I totally want to agree with your recommendation on Disjointed. It's phenomenal. Um, it's such a great resource and it's um, you know very straightforward, very de- easy to read. Um, but for those patients out there who maybe can't lift a book or have trouble reading, um, I, I also recommend um, people get in contact with John Rodas. Um, he's been interviewed on the podcast before. He has a great group um, and he does some patient advocacy. So for people out there who may not be able to advocate for themselves, um, being able to seek out a patient advocate who knows about um, your specific condition um, c- can also help. But I agree, if if someone is able to be their own advocate, um, it it really, um, it, it helps things so much, but it is, it's so, it's so difficult and demoralizing to talk to people who don't know these things and tell you it's all in your head. I mean, I had that exact experience with POTS when I went to the doctor and said, you know, when I um, stand up or sometimes when I lay down, my heart races and she just said, oh, yeah, that's classic um, anxiety and depression. I think she said, you know, you you just need um, SSRIs. And I was surprised because I, I wasn't connecting that to thoughts in my head. It was something that seemed to come out of the blue, like not when I was particularly stressed or, you know, it didn't seem to be like a typical panic attack situation. And, um, you know, finally, years later, when I got diagnosed and got a tilt table test, um, you know, my increase was huge. I think it might have even been 40 beats per minute, but it was significantly over the 30. And it, it just it's so frustrating that that little bit of inquiry, that little bit of curiosity can lead you to a, a better, a more accurate answer and, and and better treatment. But at the time, I just, you know, I didn't I didn't know better. And I thought, well, this is what the doctor says. So I guess I'll go with it. But Unfortunately, we have to be um, really seeking out physicians who are specialized, and that can be really hard because in some regions, there is maybe one or not even any specialist, but the internet has been great in you know, telemedicine where it's available. Um, there's been sort of more opportunities to, to get in touch with physicians who are knowledgeable, but yeah, hopefully the overall state of knowledge will change. It would be great if medical schools... Um, would do a basic um, course on it to just kind of educate everyone at a basic level about it. Um, Because it's incredibly devastating when you get suggested that things are in your head. And then, um, you know, when you find out that they're actually, you know, have a physical origin, um, you lose trust in the system. And it it kind of makes you reevaluate a lot of things. And it's just, it's not ideal for doctor or patient relationship. That's true. 
So let's um, break it down a little bit in terms of chronic and acute pain, because I know you treat both types. Um, and I know there's neuropathic and nociceptive pain. Um, can you give us a little bit of an overview about how these types of pains are different and what different treatment approaches are used for the different types? Well, so chronic pain is any pain that lasts more than three months, which is not a big deal. I mean, a lot of us have chronic pain conditions. Acute pain, um, you know, in the true sense, acute pain used to be defined as post-operative pain. And that's you had you just had surgery or you just broke a bone and you have pain. That that used to be acute pain, but now, in the context of chronic pain, we call that we call we I, we like to refer to acute pain as an acute exacerbation of your chronic pain. So you have a chronic pain condition, you know your hip hurts, and it you know it's a baseline pain uh, that your hip hurts, and then all of a sudden the weather changes or you just walked um, in the mall and now that hip is really hurting a lot. So that's an acute exacerbation of your chronic pain. And um, <clears throat> now the other types of pain that there are different types of pains. Um, there's the there's nociceptive pain, which means structural pain. Then there is neuropathic pain, which is nerve pain. Um, it's, you know, the definition is more academic than pra practical because almost all chronic pain conditions have a mix of both. Um, some may have a little more of the structural pain and a little less of the neuro nerve pain, and some may have more neuropathic pain and a little less structural pain. But all chronic pain conditions have a component of both. And a, a physician should be able to differentiate which is the predominant pain over here because that changes the game. Uh, so if supposing somebody comes into my office with severe leg pain, um, it helps for me to identify whether this is structural pain or whether this is neuropathic pain because the treatment for both of them is entirely different. Um, and like I said, it's a mixed pain. So if somebody comes in with leg pain may have both structural pain and nerve pain. But if the nerve pain is a lot more than the structural pain, then my, my treatment paradigm should focus towards treating more of nerve pain rather than the structural pain. That's, so this, this, this is where we really have to differentiate uh, between, uh, between the different types of pain. Acute pain and chronic pain um, also comes into play where you don't want too many flares. Almost all chronic pain conditions have flare-ups. And an ideal treatment, uh, an ideal treatment regimen would con consist of not having as many flare-ups. You you will let me take an example, give you an example. Headaches. So somebody has headaches, headaches, headaches and then has an acute headache, um, let's say a migraine headache. Uh, the idea is that you don't want 20 migraines a month. You may limit the migraines to maybe three or four or two or three per month. That's where the treatment uh, goals should be. Um, obviously, getting rid of pain is, is, is an ideal goal, but that doesn't happen often. So in a patient with migraines, you want to reduce it as reduce the acute flare-ups as much as possible. 
So that's how you approach this. So there are many different approaches to how you treat pain, uh, whether you're looking at it as an acute uh, chronic, acute exacerbation of a chronic pain condition. Are you looking at the difference between neuropathic pain and uh, structural pain or nociceptive pain? And that's how the approach changes. That makes a lot of sense. And is there, this is maybe um, kind of a complicated question, but is there a way to tell what is structural pain and, and what is nerve pain? Because I can see what you're saying, that there there's a complex relationship between the two. And, um, you know, I think I, I sort of vaguely can perceive the difference between, you know, something that's acute and something that's nerve, but sometimes it, it's really hard to tell. Um, like, are nerve conduction studies used or are there ways... Or, or is it more how the patient describes the experience? It's That is a tough one to decide. Um, if it is an obviously neuropathic pain, for example, complex regional pain syndrome, CRPS is a obviously neuropathic pain condition with a very small element of structural pain. And there, this patient would, would present with uh, classic symptoms where it they have pain to soft touch. They have a temperature difference. They have a color difference, things like that. That's one extreme. Um, but then you also have on other on the other end, you'll have somebody will present with sort of a burning pain that stays on all the time, even when there's no inciting factor. So they're just sitting watching a movie and their foot starts to hurt. That is often you start to think of it as being more of a neuropathic pain. Um so it's it's a, it's a bit of a challenge differentiating between the two. Uh, structural pain, for example, if somebody has hip pain, um, you start, you know, they'll tell you that, okay, the minute I stand or when I walk for some time, my hip starts to hurt. But when I sit down or when I'm lying down, I have no pain. Then, you, then that sounds more like structural pain versus nerve pain because nerve pain doesn't go down that much, but the structural pain does go down. It, it goes up with uh, with inciting it, uh, like walking or moving or physical activity, and it goes almost goes away or goes be- becomes better with rest. It's a little difficult differentiating between the two. That makes sense, um, and that's it's great that you've kind of done the work to investigate that because I would assume there's sort of slightly different um, modalities. And I understand that your approach to treating pain is really multidisciplinary and includes a variety of approaches. Um, And so I realize this is a sort of a very broad question, but could you tell us a little bit about your approach and the different tools and methods that you use to treat chronic pain and sort of its various symptoms and manifestations? Carrie. There's only one rule to treating pain. Just one and only one rule. Find the cause of the pain and fix it. I love that. It's so simple. (laughs) It's so simple, right? But people don't understand that. Even the CDC doesn't understand that. When they talk about pain, they talk about substance abuse in the same sentence, which annoys me. And so... I'll give you an analogy, okay? If you have a flat tire, you can fill it with air and drive another couple of miles, but then you're going to still get a flat tire. The only treatment here is 
to change that tire, to fix the flat. That's it. So if you're if you're if someone is having pain because their knee joint is unstable, then fixing the instability is what makes sense. Everything else is just is is okay. You can you can use other things, other modalities for the time being. Like all right, I can take a Motrin and I'll help my knee pain. But eventually, the treatment uh, what you need is to fix what's broken. And that's there's only one rule to it. That's it. So there are there are two aspects to pain. One is the degree of pain. Okay, so I don't like using that scale thing, the numbers that they have, which just doesn't make sense to me. But in this example, I'm going to use that. Okay, let's say um, my my pain. There's a pain number. Okay, so let's say my pain is seven out of ten. My tolerance to pain is also very important here. And let's put that on a similar scale and say, if my tolerance to pain is 8 out of 10, I'm good. My pain is 7 or 10. My tolerance to pain is 8 or 10. I'm good. I don't have a problem. But if my tolerance to pain goes down, then that 7 sounds a lot more. If your tolerance to pain goes down to 1, or zero, and then that pain becomes a lot more. Now, that's where you can use a multidisciplinary approach. You can talk about uh, biofeedback. You can talk about um, CBT treatments, CBT, uh, cognitive behavioral, behavioral therapies. But these don't treat, they don't fix the problem. They, are, they help bring up your tolerance to pain. So if I have pain, Let's say my left knee hurts, and let's say it hurts 7 out of 10 um, on an average day. Right now, let's say 7 out of 10. And all of a sudden, I get some bad news and I get depressed. That 7 is going to feel like 9 or 10. Nothing happened to my knee. It's just that my brain is now, is now depressed because I just heard some bad news. So that 7 feels more like a 9 or 10. Now, that's where other modalities like biofeedback, CBT, and all these things come into play. Um, <clears throat> but the, the, the golden rule for treating pain is to find the cause of the pain and treat it. That's it. There's no other. I mean, yes, for the sometimes you can't fix it. Sometimes you just have a, somebody has a terrible you know, ankle joint just, and they went and did some surgery on it and messed it up and screwed it up. And now that ankle joint just won't hold the person. In that case, you start looking at medicines and painkillers and things like that to help the person be functional. But if essentially at the end of the day, you have to fix the cause of the pain. Absolutely. And I, I love your tire metaphor because I think that's so true. Like if you have a um, if you have a tire that's losing air, you can either keep filling it constantly and eventually it's going to blow out. Right. Um, or you could put like a piece of, you know, masking tape over it, like a band aid. Um, but you still have the underlying problem. And I've used the analogy that it's almost like the phone is ringing, telling you your house is on fire. Well, you can either disconnect the phone from the wall so you don't hear the bad news anymore or you can respond to the call. So it's like, um, right. there's a certain like urgency in sort of addressing um, 
the issues that can be addressed. Like you said, not all, all pain can be addressed. Um, which sort of then, you know, gets me to the question when we're in the territory where, um, you know, the, it's chronic, let's say it's not responding to surgery or it's unclear what the, um, the underlying, um, you know, mechanism is that's causing the pain. Um, I guess if I could get a little bit of detail about the different methods you use, like biofeedback, like what do you see as the role for biofeedback? What is kind of the ideal patient for that sort of treatment? See, with biofeedback, um, this things have things have become a lot more advanced now, and you can literally get apps and programs on your computer, and you can do it at home. Um, when we trained, you had to go to a special place, and there were all these fancy gadgets and gizmos that would attach to you. But remember how I gave you the analogy of the level of pain and the tolerance to pain, and there are yeah. two different things. So biofeedback, the, the way it works is it increases your tolerance to pain. It doesn't do anything to the flat tire. It just increases the tolerance to pain and you're able to tolerate it much better. So the flare-ups flare that you get on a daily basis, those don't seem so sharp or you can um, help with biofeedback, bring it down. The problem with biofeedback is that it's not it's not available all that much. There are not many good providers for biofeedback, but there are good apps and there are good uh, programs out there that do that, uh, that help. I mean, it's, it's, you look at some of the meditation apps, you look at some of the CBT apps and they'll do the same thing that uh, a lot of these people do. And the advantage is that you can do them at any time you're, you're, at home. So in terms of following your treatment regimen, we're, we're going a little bit off track. What, what I wanted to say was that I call it the rule of 10. It's called the NC rule of 10. That means that if you can get 10% benefit from one thing, let's say you get 10% benefit from physical therapy, 10% from your painkillers, 10% from wearing a brace, 10% from CBT, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. So if you get five things that give you, each of them give you 10% benefit, you, all of a sudden you now have 50% mm -hmm. relief. And that's all that we're looking for, 50% relief. So for your listeners, I just want them to understand that there is no magical pill. We've all realized that there's no magical pill, but you use, utilize a little bit of each, get 10%, just expect to get 10% benefit from something. And that itself, um, a few 10% and you have 50%. I think that's a great way. Which, which, is, which is the classical uh, NC10 rule. Um, <clears throat> and this also uh, applies to, uh, <clears throat> for this is more for us physicians to understand is, that if someone has uh, someone has pain, for example, like I said, you you know some, somebody comes in with shoulder pain, and you look, you have to find out what's the cause of the shoulder pain. 
you know, it could be a dislocated shoulder joint, it could be a muscle spasm, or it could be a nerve being impinged, or it could be a blood vessel being impinged, or it could be any or all of those conditions. And so they have to treat each one of these, figure out what is the actual cause of the pain and fix it. The problem is that most physicians don't examine, they don't touch patients. And you you will never be able to find out if the joint is lax or loose or what the cause of the pain is until you actually physically examine the patient. And this is one of the things I teach my medical students. Physically examine the patients. There's nothing, the patients have the answer. You just have to find out. They'll give you the answer to your problem, to your question, the cause of the pain. So, but we're so you sometimes I think when MRIs were invented, they did a little more harm to medicine than benefit. One was that I think now what happens is students learn, oh yeah, you got a shoulder pain, let's get an MRI. An MRI is not going to show you a dislocated shoulder joint. It's not going to show you a subluxing shoulder joint. That's the thing. But and that will only come up if you actually ask the patient or actually examine the patient. There have been so many times when I've seen an EDS patient and I've explained to them what a subluxation feels like. And then they said, then this, it just, you can see the light bulb. Like, oh yeah, okay, so that's that's a subluxation. Well, my shoulder does that, my hip does that, my ankle does that. And then they come up with a slew mm-hmm. of things. But before that, when I ask them, they'll say like, no, my, I don't have any mm-hmm. subluxations. So <clears throat> examining a patient is a, is a crucial thing. In, comes, in terms of treatment, you always have to apply the 10% rule. So patients should have that expectation that there's no one condition that's going to relieve. There's no one treatment that's going to relieve all the pain. There was so much good insight in what you just said. Um, I, I agree. I think the invention of the MRI has been a real double-edged sword because um, people think that it sees a lot more than it does. Um, And like this comes up with cranial cervical instability and atlantoaxial instability. Um, You know, like an MRI can read totally normal when you're laying flat on your back, but that's not when these patients are predominantly having their symptoms. Their issue is when they're upright and you can't see that movement in a, in a regular MRI. And that's why, um, you know, people are pushing for more upright MRIs. But it also creates just this hyper focus on what we can see with the technology that we have. And it reminds me of um, there was one very famous condition. I can't remember if it was multiple sclerosis. It was discussed in, I think, the documentary Unrest. But basically, people who had this condition, which is now fully recognized as a physical condition, were thought to be malingerers and fakers until the CT scan was invented. And then you could see what was going on with them. And it's heartbreaking to think of how many times this phenomenon has happened throughout history of people having very real physical issues that just don't show up using the approach of the time. And then there's a discovery and then you can see. So I have hope that future imaging technologies will be able to see the micro tears and and a joint slightly out of place. But I think for the time being, you know, it would be great if doctors would get out of kind of the hyper technical world of everything looking for everything in MRIs and blood tests. And, and like what you said, listen to the patients and physically examine them. And it's incredible how little both of those things happen, which seem essential 
um, to any medical treatment. And, you know, I'm reminded of a story of a very prominent person in my community who got very ill and went to the emergency room, was admitted and was being treated for one kind of infection. And it wasn't until his wife physically examined him. I don't know if she was changing his clothes or um, kind of helping him bathe, but she noticed that his leg was black and he had sepsis. And so they were treating him for a completely different condition than he had. And I couldn't believe he had been admitted to the hospital and nobody had physically examined him. And he was, you know, in his eighties, you know, at, at high risk. And so um, it's, it's kind of mind boggling. Do you have thoughts on why so many doctors are hesitant to, um, to, to touch their patients and examine them? Um, and, and, and also maybe why they're so reluctant to ask questions and, and listen. It, does it go back to the, the, the lazy comment from earlier or is there more? Yeah, Harry, <laughs> you know the answer. They're lazy. They're lazy. They don't want to work. It's so much easier to write a prescription for um, an MRI or some blood test, which is totally unrelated, and send them off. My medical students, I asked them, I said, like, listen, if you're ordering a blood test or an MRI, you should know what you're going to find in that. This is not a fishing expedition. You better know what you're what you're looking for. This is not. You can't just say, "Oh, you know what? Let me do an MRI and let me run this, you know, three thousand dollar blood test to see if what shows up." That's not how medicine works. That's not how it works. It it works by asking the patient questions, getting a history, getting a physical exam. Seventy percent, and this is not me saying it. It's in the literature. 70% of the diagnoses are made based on history and physical examination. For all conditions. Wow. For all conditions. Even you're talking about, you talked about craniocervical instability. You talked about cherry malformation. You know, <clears throat> these are, yes, I agree. You need an MRI to eventually confirm it. But before you send the patient to an MRI center and get a $3,000 MRI, you can ask them a series of questions, do an exam, and you can see whether they. You, well, you can, you can, you can put the put the picture together and say like, okay, you know, I just asked this patient ten questions and he answered nine of them as yes, and it and I on on my exam, I like in my case uh, for cervical instability, I'll do a small manual traction and then all of a sudden. The world looks glorious to them. Hey, I can see better. My, I don't feel so dizzy now, and my pain is so much better. I can breathe so much better. You know that we're talking about CCI now. Now you can say, all right, this is the time to go get a real MRI and you know talk to a neurosurgeon maybe or try some treatments and all that stuff. But you don't, we can't, every patient that comes in, Every EDS patient that comes in with neck neck pain, um, we can't just order MRIs because it's just going to yep. it doesn't make sense. Yeah. And yep. so you can or you can make a lot of these diagnoses or come very close to making these diagnoses on a physical exam, history and physical. I'm telling you, the patient has the answer. Yeah, I I completely agree, and um, it, it's. It's perplexing when, you know, patients are in a system where they're paying quite a bit for their treatment and they're often not listened to. And there and there are so many answers in in just listening. 
Um, but some, but sometimes it, it takes that kind of knowledge and that kind of investigation, like what you described, you know, if you ask a patient, do you have subluxations? They may not know what that is. So they may say, no, I don't think so. I've never heard of that. But then you need to kind of ask the questions. Oh, do you feel, you know, does your joint, um, you know, feel like it slides too much and then you get pain or, you know, you ask them specifics and then you find out that they do have that. And um, I'm reminded of an interview I did recently with a physical therapist, and she was saying that for 10 years, she practiced as a physical therapist, and she had no idea that she had EDS, because the way it was taught to her in her physical therapy school was that EDS is very, very severe always, people have mobility aids, and she didn't relate to that because that didn't fit her picture. And it seems like, unfortunately, um, a lot of conditions, EDS included, um, are often sort of envisioned in terms of their most extreme manifestations and then the whole kind of spectrum of everything else gets ignored, unfortunately. <laughs> right. So, and this is a very common feature. Uh, patients, you know, especially kids, when they come into my office, I'll ask them, you know, do you get subluxations? And by the way, subluxations are much more common than dislocations in EDS. And so they'll say, no, I don't have a joint subluxation. And then I describe it. Look, this is how a joint looks like. And then if it slips out, um, that's called a subluxation. And the, what you'll feel is that when it slips out is all of a sudden something doesn't seem right and it hurts a lot. And then you do a little wiggle and a jiggle and then it slips right back in, and all of a sudden, it's everything is fine. It's something you're you're all put together. The pain goes down, and everything seems to be in the right place. And that's when you can see that light bulb come up and say, like, "Oh yeah, my shoulder does that, my knee does it, my elbow does it, my every." There'll be six joints that do that. So <clears throat> it's that's the other thing. Our terminology, we need to work on that. Why not just call it a slippery joint? A subluxation. I completely agree. I, I remember learning the formal yeah. term for a heart attack is what a myocardial infarction. And I thought, wow, can't we just call that a heart attack? I mean, like, it seems like there's a level of making things more complicated. Um, and that's certainly true in the law, too. You know, there's tons of Latin phrases and very complicated terms. And I agree with anything that just makes things simpler, especially in a situation like this, where ultimately the patients really have to be very well informed on their condition because they may run into a doctor who's not informed at all. Right. So to go back, just to close the loop on um, what we were just talking about, are there specific types of biofeedback or apps that you have ha found success with, or is that really an individualized de determination? <sighs> It's, it's, I don't, I mean, I, I can't think of specific apps off the top of my head, um, but there are some really good ones. Uh, my, the, the thing is, Carrie, with me, you know, my, my initial visit with my, with an EDS patient lasts about four hours. And even that four hours is, is tightly packed. So, I really don't have the time to get into um, different modalities about CBT or uh, biofeedback. And it's also something that I don't like to discuss on my first visit because the minute you, some, some people misconstrue that. 
I was like, oh, you're saying it's in my head. Um, I usually will bring it up in a later appointment when, you know, that's when I think the patient needs some help. But my focus uh, is usually on finding out what's broken and trying to fix it. That's where I am. I really, I don't know much about the specific apps on okay, biofeedback. No, but that's, I, I think that's know. a really helpful approach. And I think it's very conscientious of you to think about how your recommendations are perceived by patients, because um, a lot of even very well-intentioned um, statements from, you know, physicians and stuff really get interpreted um, as, as being accused as this is in your head. Um, you know, like a lot of physical therapists now are doing the brain pain education where they get out the flashcards and they say, pain is only in your brain. If you didn't have a brain, you wouldn't have pain. And so, you know, your brain creates pain. And I, I just think to myself, well, if I didn't have a brain, you couldn't have a stroke either, but that doesn't mean that your brain creates strokes. You know, it's just, it's such an absurd kind of situation. So kudos to you for having the sensitivity and, and caring about your patients to think about how your information is received and when is the best time to raise things. And I ultimately really appreciate your approach of doing whatever you can to try to find the root cause to, to fix the, you know, either patch up the tire or, you know, do what needs to be done um, to, to get going as, as um, best as you can. That's all for part one of our interview with Dr. Chopra in this series. If you'd like to listen to more episodes, and including additional parts of this interview, um, please subscribe to Hypermobility Happy Hour, and we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.